friends, frenemies, or adversaries, China and the U.S. in the coming decade. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Amy Webb, Professor of Strategic Foresight at NYU Stern School of Business, author, quantitative futurist, and founder of the Future Today Institute. Welcome, Amy. Hey, Tanya. It's good to be back. It's great to have you back. So explain your mission at the Future Today Institute, and who do you serve? Mm -hmm. The Future Today Institute is a research and advisory organization, and most of what we do is management consulting. Uh, we've been around for 15 years. We research emerging technologies, develop risk and opportunity models, and uh, support a wide variety of senior man managers and executive leaders on their long-term futures. And I would say most of what we focus on is emerging technology. The Future Today Institute publishes an annual tech trends report. In the 2019 edition, one of the key takeaways you identified was the growing multi-domain influence of China on the world's technology stage. In relation to the U.S., should we consider the Chinese to be rival competitors or something closer to an adversary? Well, I think before we get down to brass tacks uh, and determine whether or not China is our, our friend or frenemy, or just straight up enemy. Uh, we should at the very least acknowledge that China has um, moved far past copy paste culture, which I think is a, a, what a lot of us have grown up thinking when we think about China. Uh, China you know, has been innovating in technology. Um, they're producing some of the best in class mobile devices out there right now. They certainly have best in class computer vision technology and machine learning technology and, and you know, lots of other technologies. And we, we didn't really go even into areas like genomic editing. Um, and so what's happened, I think, is that we failed to recognize China as a militaristic, diplomatic, and economic pacing threat. Uh, and we, we failed to do that for too long. And so now, as we head into not just a new year, but a new decade, it would be very, very wise of us to really think through the long-term implications of some of China's technological and scientific developments but also some big strides they've made in the realm of geopolitics and how they're starting to reshape alliances around the world and also the, the whole geo uh, economy, so the way that our global economies work. So let's drill down on that. What is China doing today in technology-related geopolitics for which we in the U.S. are least prepared? Gosh, how long do we have? <laughs> Uh, there's a long list. So I'll start with a couple of quick anecdotes, like a couple of quick stories. So everybody's probably familiar with the imbroglio in 2019 around ZTE and Huawei being um, maybe welcomed and then definitely banned. And then are we banning these technologies? Nobody's quite sure, but a lot of confusion around which technologies to um, allow from China into the US marketplace. And while all of that was happening, China was quietly unveiling a plan of its own. And so in the coming year, China's in the process of removing all, all US-based software, or a lot of it, from, from government computers, and changing over a lot of its hardware systems to Chinese-made hardware manufacturers. Now, some of this comes down to how they're going to define, for example, a company like Microsoft or a company like Google, which has... Um, divisions domiciled in China and whether China ultimately determines that Google and Microsoft are, you know, they're technically U.S. companies, but they're 
playing by Chinese rules in a way that maybe continues to allow them. But if China decides that at the, at the top levels that it's going to really go through with this scheme, um, you know, that's a huge market. That is a huge market and potentially a huge blow to some of America's largest technology companies. Um, you know, in the realm of things like content, I mean, one of the craziest stories I think of 2019 didn't really get talked about, and that was South Park. Uh, Tanya, do you watch South Park by any chance? I, I did many years ago, but I haven't, I haven't lately. I feel, don't you, I feel like in the state of Colorado, I guess you're not in Colorado. <laughs> what I did, you're I, I did Colorado. spend a fair amount of time. And I've been to South Park, so. So, right. So for those who weren't following what happened, this season of South Park, I love, but this season <laughs> of South Park um, has uh, one of its main characters doing business in China and failing to follow the rules in China and it gets banned in China. And they, South Park uses that, as they always do, as an example to shine a light on what's happening in pop culture and the political you know, scene. And you know, they, they in like, they, they didn't mince words. Uh, they, they were like, you know, China is oppressing the Uyghur population, was, which is an ethnic Muslim minority, but huge, huge numbers of people um, that they're doing horrible things to these people in, you know, sort of a modern day concentration camp. So South Park has this entire episode based on this and uh, found that it was going to be banned in China and then followed up the next week and just like went all in and did a whole episode about being banned in China. And it took just a few, like just a few days for China to wipe out all evidence that South Park ever existed from its servers, from its networks. I mean, it's, it's not there anymore. And as a result of that, um, the distribution rights for South Park were in play. And this was like a big, big story that kind of got lost in the shuffle um, as we were talking about the NBA and uh, you know, free speech uh, for the players, and and you know, so I think what a lot of this points to is that you know, democracy. I think we're going to learn in the year 2020 what the monetary value of democracy actually is. You know, and that's a calculation that I don't think anybody's ever attempted to make before. But if we start adding up all of the instances of China denying U.S. businesses their right not only to do business in China but their right to do business with Chinese allied countries that are part of um, its Belt and Road Initiative and some of its other state level initiatives, I think we're gonna start to feel a new kind of economic squeeze that we haven't felt before. Now, I would define some of what I'm starting to see as a new kind of economic warfare. Uh, you know, and, and I would argue that the wars of the future may not necessarily involve all the cool whiz-bang technology that we're used to seeing on, on movies and in television shows, but is rather just very, very astute, sharp economic policy that cripples not just the United States, but other Western-style democracies all around the world. And quite frankly, that is absolutely frightening to me. Related to that, you warn us not to make specific industry segment comparisons between the two countries, but rather to look at trends together for connections. What do you see for the early 2020s? So, and I want to I want to just be very clear here because there's a fair amount of Sino bashing that's happening right now that is reminiscent of the Japan bashing that happened in the late 70s and 80s as the Japanese auto sector picked up speed. So I think we ought to be very careful. China's a country with 1.4 billion people and 
you know, I, I lived there for a while. I'm certainly no expert. You know, it's a, it's a big place. It's a very diverse um, country. Now, that being said, we're starting to see, again, some developments that we, I think, ought to be paying attention to. So as of December 1st, 2019, um, in, if you live in China and you want to have a mobile phone, like a mobile service plan, like an AT&T or a Verizon, like we have in the United States, you have to submit your biometric information to a national registry. So you have to scan your face. This, the face your face has to be stored and tagged, you know, and, and um, be, be a part of government, you know, gov a giant government database. Uh, and if you fail to do that, you, you don't get to use mobile service. And, and it's the same thing for internet service. Now, on the face of it, you could say, well, what's the big deal? Plenty of other people are willingly scanning their faces to unlock their phones in the United States and elsewhere, right? So like, you can use your face to unlock an iPhone. I think the key difference is that um, you know, this biometric data is, is going to the government um, in China for the purpose of building a much more robust data profile for each one of its citizens. And as China... Uh, starts to evolve from using cash to digital payments only and not via a traditional credit card or like a NFC chip um, or RFID, but rather using biometrics that starts to totally reshape uh, who has access to seeing what people are purchasing and what their behaviors are. So on the one hand, that's a loss for privacy and civil rights, but that's a huge win for all of the companies that are in the space of mining, refining, productizing and optimizing data. And it gives a massive strategic advantage to Chinese companies over virtually every other company in the world because they're going to have so much unprecedented access to unfettered biometric data. Um, and we're just talking about fintech, but like there are, there are areas that this, other areas that this helps like uh, health um, and health technologies and pushing the envelope and trying to understand CRISPR uh, and genomic editing tools, and you know, um, and understanding disease and disease management and disease spread. I mean, they are they are going to have a big advantage over everybody else. So true. Amy Webb, professor of strategic foresight at NYU Stern School of Business, author, quantitative futurist, and founder of the Future Today Institute. Thanks for shedding some light on our relationships with China and what we can expect moving forward. Amy, if somebody wants to maybe pick up uh, your research or, or maybe your new research that you'll be releasing, um, how can they do that? All of my research is free and open source, and it's available at futuretodayinstitute.com. Uh, you can also meet the other members of my team at the Future Today Institute and learn a little bit more about the work that we do. Thanks again, Amy. It's always a pleasure having you as a guest. And if you guys want to find more of my interviews, you can do that right here or go to tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.